Hello and welcome, dear listener, the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast. We're in lockdown, so I'm trying something new. I'm using a slightly different technology with the Restream service that we normally use for just sending messages and chats. I'm using that for the recording of the video and for sending it out to you. And fingers crossed that it's actually appearing on Facebook and YouTube. Joe is around somewhere in our little green room and whatever. So hello, Joe. Say hello if you're you're not muted. I was muted, but evening all. Okay. Sorry to throw that on you at the last minute. So hello, Sim Bungie's there. So we're on the air, at least in terms of YouTube. So dear listener, look, tonight's a bit of an experiment. Uh, Regular panel couldn't make it. Um, Paul's internet where he lives... I think it's run by a couple of mice on a sort of a treadmill type operation. So he can't communicate with anybody via Zoom or that sort of stuff. So it's just myself. Joe is going to help out as well. And look, I sent a link. It's in the comments section. If you want to just chime in and talk about any topic at all that we've been talking about over the last six years, feel free to chip in. I thought I would just talk away about COVID for a little while and while I'm talking about COVID, you know, we can interrupt and cross over and talk about anything. So, well, we're all in lockdown. It feels like we're all in lockdown. And I saw a poll that just came out in The Australian and it was about the Prime Minister's performance in handling this pandemic. And I'm going to share that with you. So... There it is on the screen with a bit of luck. And overall, 61% of Australians think that Scott Morrison has done either very well or fairly well in terms of handling this pandemic. And the really worrying figure, of course, 84% of coalition voters think that, but 51% of Labor supporters think that overall Scott Morrison has done well in terms of his handling of the pandemic. So Labor has got so much work to do. That should not be happening. At least the Greens have got it worked out. Only 35% of them think that Scott Morrison's done well and 61% think he hasn't. So so to me, that's a worrying uh, trend. And you know, one of the reasons why Labor should be able to force this issue is is the vaccination rates are so poor in Australia. When you look at what's going on around the world, I just went to our world in data and looked at a share of population fully vaccinated against COVID-19, and we are behind places like Palestine, Brazil, Mexico, El Salvador, Ireland. You know, these places are killing us when it comes to fully vaccinating their population. The only countries that we're ahead of are the sorts of countries like Fiji, Iran, South Africa, Afghanistan. It's a terrible result. And really, if Labor does do something here, they can surely get um, some traction on the next election. So what have we got here? Tom, the warehouse guy, says this PM is responsible for so much damage, could have avoided the entire pandemic by spending a fraction of that $180 billion on inland quarantine facility when Italy was going through everything. Indeed, Tom, and Matthew agrees, and I just, it's so obvious what a 
bumbling, incompetent bunch of morons we've got in charge of this country. At what point do we get a revolution, folks? Come on, at what point? So it's, it's got to become apparent at some stage. I've had my first shot. Joe, have you had a shot yet of uh, Pfizer or...? I am fully vaccinated with Pfizer. Fully vaccinated, very good. So I've had my first shot and I went to the Royal Brisbane Hospital just as a walk-in and they were taking anybody. So so uh, you basically just walked up, didn't matter how old or young you were, they would take anyone for Pfizer. So now they've got that. The thing though is they gave me a pamphlet which had a QR code on it and it said scan this and you can organise your booking for the next, uh, for your second appointment. You scan, yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, you you, you do it and it sends you down this rabbit hole where you fill in all your information again and then you disappear into the never-never and get bounced back to the page where you started with. It's it's just appalling. Yeah, it, it's really badly done and there is a vaccination reservations.queensland or something, which isn't the site they give you. Right. I'll have to get that off you, Joe, because I can't get... Huh? Um, I can't get through that to make my second appointment. So just simple things. You know, it's taken forever to finally get the check-in app. I remember I was in New South Wales many, many months ago and I thought, what a great check-in app. In Queensland, it took another three months before we got a check-in app that was so quick. So just these things that shouldn't be that difficult to do takes our governments a long time. So, So, yeah, so that's my story in terms of vaccinations and, you know, in terms of Australia and our placing in the world, we are a long way behind. Just in terms of other things, got another chart which just tracking COVID cases in the world, cases and the mortality rate, and it looks to me like the mortality rate was quite high initially in that first sort of March and April last year. And then it's pretty much settled down to match the, the the case rate somewhere around the 2% sort of level worldwide in terms of 2% of people who contract the virus die from it. Now, in Western developed countries, that's more in the 1.5% or something like that. But that seems to be the figure that's, you know, consistent around the world. And so I just looked at... Uh, January figure, there were 14,000 deaths in that day worldwide. There were 700,000 new cases worldwide. That worked out at 2%. The USA is 1.8%. If you're looking at in terms of cases per day, I've got another chart here which shows at different times, the UK and the USA have been up around that 800 cases per million a day. If Australia was to follow that at some point, if this pandemic got out of control, we would be looking at 20,000 cases per day as a similar sort of infection rate as what's been happening in the UK and the USA. And at a mortality rate of 2%, that would be 400 people dying every day. Or mortality rate of 1%, it would be 200 per day. So we've got to be careful that we don't get to that situation. What's happening in the chat room? Let me see here. John says the New South Wales check-in app is the one good thing Dictator Glad has done right. Maybe the Fed should have made it national. Dictator Glad, yeah. I've, I saw a reference to her as uh, Gladimir Putin. That's quite a good one. Yeah, it is. It's not too bad. So she was sort of snookered where, you know, for months she's been 
poo-pooing the other states who were going into lockdowns and, and claiming that it wasn't necessary if you had a gold standard tracking system and that's all fallen by the wayside as, as things have got out of hand. So, I did see Friday's news. Uh, there was some doctor talking about New South Wales and saying, call it what you want, but it's a lockdown whichever way you spin it. And the sooner we go into a proper lockdown, the sooner we come out. Yes. And say, basically, stop pussyfooting around and trying not to have a lockdown. Just get it over and done with. Yeah. She was actually at the point where she was kind of, it was a bit like Voldemort. She, was, she wasn't wanting to say the L word at one point in a press conference. She eventually changed yeah. her tune, but she was struggling with, with, the, with the nasty L word. So, so that was Gladys. Right. So what else have I got here? Oh, just uh, let me just see. We're going to be talking unless now, just reminding you, dear listeners, that there is a link there. And if you want to join in and talk about anything, it doesn't have to be COVID, it can be anything that I've been rabbiting on about over the last few months. Click on the link and you'll be joining us and going live. We'll see how we go. Okay. What have I got here? Bear with me a second. So this is another chart which looks at comparing OECD countries depending on whether they were aiming for elimination or mitigation. And what we've got is the countries that opted for elimination were Australia, Iceland, Japan, New Zealand and South Korea. And then the rest of the OECD countries were going for mitigation. And on the charts, first one on the left shows deaths per million per day. The red line is the elimination countries. The blue line is the mitigation countries. And you can see, obviously, the elimination countries did far better in terms of uh, limited number of deaths per million. Then the next graph, the middle one, looks at uh, GDP change. And the red line is the elimination countries. And you can see that they didn't dip as low in terms of negative GDP and they've now gone much higher in terms of their bounce back into positive GDP. So from a GDP perspective, they've done better. And strictness of the lockdown. So when you're actually measuring the government controls on the population and the restriction on, restrictions on them, the countries which went for the elimination strategy actually had less strictness of lockdown than the countries that went for mitigation. So, and, you know, just living here in Brisbane, we know that for months we've basically been able to live a pretty normal lifestyle and it's only now that we're having this hopefully temporary lockdown. So, so yeah, bear that in mind for anyone out there who wants to uh, poo-poo the elimination strategy when it comes to deaths, GDP and the strictness of the lockdowns, everything favours the strategy that we've been going for. So that, of course, is... Uh, really, this is where people need to get to grips with the difference between the roles of the states and the Commonwealth. It was really the states that were pushing for the elimination strategy and the Morrison government wasn't really up for it in the beginning. It was the states that were. So that's something that I think Labor needs to emphasise is what was going on in the backroom deals and discussions where the Morrison government was really going for a mitigation and it was the states that went for elimination. So bear that in mind. 
Hello, Mel. Uh, she says she really enjoyed last week's replay discussion and the book review. That's good. Uh, glad you enjoyed that, Mel. And you've got over the state of origin fiasco because <laughs> I know you're a rugby league supporter. What else have we got here? There's a good challenge, running a chat room, putting up screen sharing and doing commentary at the same time. But, hey, why not? The shovel come up with a good idea. They, in terms of trying to get people to agree to get the vaccine, they suggested the government launched a no jab, no negative gearing in a desperate bid to increase take up amongst boomers. That will work, I think. Here's one on Martin Isles. So we're going to combine a bit of uh, Christian bashing with COVID information here. So Martin Isles, that's the thing that gets me about Christians like Martin Isles is why, why are Christians so unchristian? So on his Facebook page... So I'm quoting him on his Facebook page here. He says, So how does COVID-19 end exactly? And why won't anyone, including political leaders, answer this question? If the virus does not seem to be burning out naturally, then it's a question we must face. Waiting won't end it. Lockdowns won't end it. International travel bans won't end it. Vaccination won't end it. Seychelles? Help me out here, Joe. The Seychelles, is it just pronounced? Seychelles. Seychelles? Yeah. Is the most vaccinated country in the world and they're imposing fresh restrictions due to a spike in case numbers. He goes on, mass vaccination will make some difference, but it won't end it. So I ask again, how in the world does this end? The cold, hard answer is it probably doesn't. Ultimately, we have to accept that there will be cases. Our political leaders cannot admit this because they've spooked everyone into a position where they won't accept anything less than zero cases. They did that at least partly for themselves to win elections on a keeping you safe platform. I don't agree with Jane Herdlicker, the Virgin CEO, on much, but she was very right about this, despite getting smacked down by the PM. At some point, even post-vaccine, we have to live with it and accept the implications. If we don't, we're going to be stuck like this for a very, very long time. But as we have seen, this is a hard argument to make in public because people are enslaved by their fear of death. I just don't get it. If you're a Christian and you are concerned about the welfare of others, why aren't you promoting something that is helping to keep people healthy and safe? What's the... I just don't get the incentive for these people to be anti-lockdown. Because you should just trust in Jesus. He will take care of you. Yeah, but it just doesn't make sense to me. Why, why they wouldn't be more positive about this and why they wouldn't be saying the economy's not well, so important, be, people are. Because the end times are coming. Yeah. And they see and it as... we're just waiting. Yeah, absolutely. This is a sign of the end. Yeah, maybe. It's just, just a hard a hard view to take if you're supposed to be Christians. But, of course, you can't trust these people on anything, not only the Bible, but just even in... In those comments, what is it, 150 words maximum? He talked about the Seychelles. So he said, it's the most vaccinated country in the world and they're imposing fresh restrictions due to a spike in case numbers. So I thought to myself, oh, well, that's interesting. I'll Google the Seychelles and the, what's going on there. And came across this article that said 71% of people have had, have had at least one COVID vaccine dose. And 62% have been fully vaccinated. But of these, 57% have received the Sinopharm vaccine, which is the 
Chinese version. Which, which needs, they reckon, three jabs now. Yep. And 43% received the AstraZeneca. And just in this article, it said, you know, what are the other possible explanations as to why the Seychelles is having a problem despite this high vaccination rate? And one answer was that, well, the Indian variant is around and it it could well, those vaccines not be effective against the Indian variant. And it also said that perhaps in the Seychelles, mass failures of the cold chain logistics needed for transport and storage, which might have rendered the vaccines ineffective. I mean, that wouldn't surprise me that they didn't store them correctly and hence they became ineffective, particularly when you contrast that with the party of 30 people, I think, in New South Wales, and everybody got the virus except for the six people who were vaccinated. So that was a really encouraging result, I thought. So, so yeah, so when Martin Isles says that about the Seychelles, when you same with all these people, whether it's a Spiked Magazine article or whatever, if they say that somebody says something, you have to double-check. You can't trust them. He also I, said, I was reading News Limited the other day, mm-hmm. and the headline didn't say what the article said. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It happens all the time. The other thing he said in there was he didn't agree with Jane Herdlicker, the Virgin CEO, much, but she was right about this. So she had actually said words to the effect of, kind of indicating some people may die. She's As a Virgin CEO, she was wanting to open up the Australian economy to, to international travellers. But she sort of walked that back a fair bit and she said, if I had my time again, I've used different words. We are a domestic airline that's absolutely committed to keeping the community safe. And she said the context of her comments was that the vulnerable needed to be vaccinated before the border closure ends and that anyone who wants a vaccine has the opportunity to have one. So that's really a situation where she's saying once everybody in the country's had a good chance to have it, then we need to open up the borders, which is different to what um, Martin Niles might have been indicating. So, so yeah, so that was Martin Niles and a hardline unchristian view that I still just don't get how it fits in with with what they're doing there. Okay, let's see in the chat room, Tom the Warehouse Guy. The UK and Israel show that Delta is already starting to break through the vaccine barrier, albeit slowly. The Peru variant has shown to break it already, but it's not as transmissible. It's interesting. The article I just read said actually the... It's something like 88% for Pfizer for both jabs and AstraZeneca is 80% against the Delta variant. Right. The problem is they have such high caseloads at the moment in the UK that it appears quite large. And the good news is the people who've been vaccinated in general are doing better than those who haven't. Yeah. So so, so even if it's not 100% effective, it's still making an impact. Yes. Yep. In the chat room... Actually, Joe, you say some Christians are libertarians, specifically the prosperity gospel Christians. Yep. And Mel says the Venn diagram overlap between the Christian right and anti-vax on many issues would describe something quite circular. Yep, there is an overlap there. I guess How it's an anti... Oh, I just clicked on this thing to show it, Joe. That was nifty, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And now I'll hide it. How's that? Yeah. I guess it's that sort of anti-science sort of 
thing that they're doing as well. Thank you for your comments. Keep making them. Obviously, tonight I'm going to get to more of them than I might ordinarily. So that was from Mel. Yes, party of 30 in Sydney. That was illustrative. So, okay. Now, let's see. What else have I got here? Okay. Comments and reposting of things on Facebook. If you see an article, maybe about a COVID related matter, maybe it refers to a medical report, it might be an article that refers to a medical report. Is there an obligation to at least read it, is my question, before you would repost it? I, I wish to propose that, yes, you should. And, I've, you know, I've, I've got a lot of, dear listener, I've got a lot of COVID stuff here that I've just had waiting in the background for a time when Paul wasn't around to interrupt me all the time so I could get all this stuff out. So, so this is, I'm going to go to town on this sort of stuff. So... This was uh, from Woz's Facebook page before Woz defriended me. And what he referred to a report which said, vitamin D level is markedly low in severe COVID-19 patients. Inflammatory response is high in vitamin D deficient COVID-19 patients. This all translates into increased mortality in vitamin D deficient COVID-19 patients. As per the flexible approach in the current COVID-19 pandemic, authors recommend mass administration of vitamin D supplements to population at risk for COVID-19. So so it's saying they found that vitamin D levels were very low in severe COVID patients and increased mortality where vitamin D was deficient and therefore suggested vitamin D supplements, which on the face of it, that's just an interesting thing that could well be the case. And people in the comments, oh, and finished off with, and there's still no evidence that either lockdowns or masks have a statistically significant effect on mortality. And there was a comment in there that this is all too nuanced for our protectors. So I saw that and I thought, oh, vitamin D, this sounds a little bit uh, odd. I'll re- you know what I'll do? I'll read the article, I'll read the medical report and see what it says. Well, it turns out it was an observational study of six weeks duration and it included either asymptomatic COVID-19 patients, so people who were not showing much symptoms, that's called group A, or there were severely ill patients who were requiring ICU admission, group B. And... 91 people were in group A, the not severe, and 63 patients were in group B. And yes, the prevalence of vitamin D deficiency was, uh, deficiency was, the prevalence of a deficiency was low in group A and it was very high in group B. So yes, the asymptomatic group A's, their vitamin D deficiency wasn't too bad but the, the quite ill people in Group B showed a very... 96% of them were showing vitamin D deficiency. So it said here, vitamin D is markedly low. It all translates into increased mortality in vitamin D deficient patients. But if you actually just keep going and reading the report, what it turned out was that the average age of the people in Group B was 10 years higher than the people in Group A. So we, we know that if you've got 
uh, age is an important factor when it comes to how you're affected by COVID. And comparing two groups where the average age is 10 years difference is just a problem to start with. Not, not to mention the low numbers, and it was an observational study, not a controlled random experiment with a placebo, etc., etc. But then keep reading, and in the comments section, one of the commentators said, what these authors seem to be completely unaware of is that vitamin D deficiency, vitamin D is a negative acute phase reactant. So if you have high inflammation in anything, you're going to end up with low vitamin D as a result of the inflammation because your body is using up vitamin D in terms of fighting uh, the inflammation. So in any illness of any inflammation, if you are fighting it hard and are under enormous stress, you will be vitamin D deficient more so than somebody who's cruising through a minor illness. It's what your body does in terms of using up vitamin D. And I then Googled around and sure enough, that is a, a, uh, a well-known you know, thing with vitamin D. So, so anyway, to those of you who think that this vitamin D argument is way too nuanced for our protectors, I would say to you, you should actually read these reports and read them properly before you comment on them. So please, if you're going to post a report, at least read it beforehand and make sure it says what you think it says. Right. What have we got in terms of comments before I move on? So Tom says the only way out of this now is a very hard lockdown of the whole country. Build an inland quarantine system, the best in the world, and reignite confidence, which is low right now, in our state and federal governments. You will never reignite confidence, my confidence, in the federal government, Tom, but, yep, I get you there. Yes, I think it's about most of the... John wants to share a picture to the chat room. I don't know how you would do it, John. That's I've got, I'm, juggling share, a, I'm juggling a lot of share, balls here. Share a link. Yeah. I don't know how you do that, but good luck. I'll okay. just paste the URL in. Okay, thank you. All right, what else have I got? How's Sweden going? <laughs> do I want to go there? I guess I do. Let's just share a screen here. Cumulative confirmed COVID-19 deaths per million people. Sweden versus the European Union. If you look at a graph, you'll see that back in the very early days, Sweden obviously had a lot more deaths per million people than other countries in the European Union. And in more recent times, since November last year, the graph has more or less matched the rest of the European Union. And I've seen comments where some people have suggested that this proves that Sweden knew what they were doing all along. <laughs> Honestly, what what's happened in Sweden is that they went their own way in the very early days, April, May, June, July. But actually since then, they've more or less fallen into line with the other European countries in terms of the stringency of their lockdown. So when you talk about the Swedish experiment, it, it actually stopped a long time ago. And what I want to bring up with a bit of luck, if I can, maybe I can, where will it be? Just bear with me for a second if I can find... This, I would confirm deaths per million. Oh, 
I'm probably not going to be able to find it, but essentially there's that stringency index which looks at what government's orders, what government orders have been made that restrict the movement of people in terms of their businesses and their movements and things like that. And it's a bit of a dangerous statistic to use to some extent because it looks only at what the government-mandated orders are and it doesn't take into account cultural issues. So you might have a relatively low stringency index, but in the community, relatively high rates of social distancing because people have voluntarily decided for cultural reasons that they're going to to maintain social distancing. So it's a very difficult statistic to use when you look at that stringency index. And I think it's best used if you're doing things like comparing states within the United States of America, where culturally, in terms of their um, willingness to socially distance and things like that, maybe they're a bit more similar than if you were comparing, say, Sweden and Japan or something like that. So it's a difficult index, but what you'll find is that when it comes to purely uh, government-mandated restrictions on movement, really Sweden has actually come into line with, with a lot of what the other European countries have done. So the Swedish experiment ended some time ago when it comes to lockdowns. Right, what else have I got? So that was Sweden and, well, just, of course, when it comes to Sweden, you should be looking at a map and and really comparing Sweden with its neighbours, Finland, Norway, Denmark. And when you do that and compare the death rates per million, then you see that Sweden has performed abysmally compared to its neighbouring countries. That's really... You've got to try and compare apples with apples as much as possible if it's to be meaningful. Somewhere along the track, somebody once mentioned South Dakota. And first up, if you're wondering where South Dakota is, there it is on the map. It's it's one of those square states <laughs> in the middle that you might fly over in between going from the east to the west coast. And South Dakota at one point was held up as being some sort of proof that you didn't need lockdowns, but in actual fact, it was just slow to get started in terms of the COVID pandemic because nobody goes to South Dakota. And eventually when people did go and the virus got a good hold of the place, then it ended up having a shocking record. So so at one point, South Dakota had 60.5 out of 100,000 of its citizens in hospital, whereas England was 24.9. So it was pretty tough in South Dakota, and anyone recommending South Dakota as an example of uh, good practice in COVID management needs to find another state. Let me see here. South Dakota. Okay, in terms of... The arguments about whether lockdowns work, again, I've got on the screen, this is a comparison of different states in America using that Blavatnik School of Government stringency index, which really looks at just the controls that the state governments applied and then looked at the prevalence of COVID in those states and, you know, as you would expect, the tighter the control measures, the less 
COVID there was in those particular states. Fancy that. Who would have thought? And so there's a graph of that up there and there's also another graph which shows different states with their average cases per 100,000 and the stringency measures. And if you certainly just want to try and compare apples with apples of different the 50 states of the United States, certainly the stringency measures show that the more stringent, the less number of cases you have. Eventually, that's how it works out. Right, what else have I got? Lockdowns in the economy. This was an article from The Conversation. So you think economic downturns cost lives? Question marks. Uh, Question mark. Our findings show that they don't. And this is an article by a bunch of authors, Associate Professor in Economics, Senior Lecturer of Economics, Senior Lecturer in Economics and Professor of Economics, University of Sydney, all of them. And they start off with a disclosure statement that they don't have any conflict of interest. And they say that throughout the coronavirus recession, we've been told there's been a balancing act when it comes to lives. On the one hand, lockdowns save lives by limiting the spread of the coronavirus. On the other, they are said to cost lives by winding back economic activity and pushing up unemployment and misery. Some argue that on balance, they increase deaths rather than prevent them. Some claim that the Great Lockdown will be as destructive as the Great Depression. Others talk of sharp increases in suicide rates. Others say it's complex and we just don't know. So they are giving what they say is an alternative fact-based perspective and they say downturns, downturns generally can save lives. So they've looked at other economic downturns throughout uh, modern history based on unemployment and recessions. And they find no relationship between unemployment and mortality in particular, so, and no significant increase in suicide rates. But they do find a significant effect on motor vehicle deaths. So what they find is that during recessions and periods of high unemployment, when young men are not working, they're not driving as much, they don't get killed as much in motor vehicle accidents. That's what they find in terms of deaths. And I've got a chart here that I will put up. Yeah, so it's looking at the COVID period of last year and comparing it to the average number of deaths in the previous five years. And if you manage to look at it, the red line shows 2020 deaths, which, as you can see, for the most part, sneaks underneath the five-year average. And so if somebody wants to say, well, other deaths of suicide and other things have increased during this COVID time because of our lockdown, the actual death certificates, death statistics don't show that. And they say that their findings are not unusual. Minimal and even overall life-saving effects of economic downturns have been observed in the United States, Germany, Canada, France, the OECD and the Asia-Pacific. So reasons why were set out in a research paper by an economist in a 2000 paper called Are Recessions Good for Your Health? And he argued that while economic downturns usually come with financial hardship, they leave people with more time to seek treatment, socialise, care for their relatives and engage in healthier lifestyles. Fewer hours commuting means fewer road deaths and fewer hours at work mean fewer workplace accidents. So that was the sort of conclusion from that article. 
So that's the sort of the COVID stuff I wanted to run through that I needed to get off my chest. I've been sitting in the background for a while. Joe, any thoughts? What have we got in the chat room? I know actually, just speaking to my own GP, because I was saying how convenient it was to do telehealth, like rather than having to take my elderly mother in for some fairly ordinary, regular consultations, we are just able to do it by phone. And my GP said she's actually found that particularly men who may not necessarily get into the clinic during this time of COVID, she was seeing them more than she ever had. So she felt that her service as a GP, she was probably providing better service and had a feeling that her community at least was doing better in terms of their medical health care than they were otherwise. So that was just an anecdotal personal experience from her. I would also agree with a chronic health condition that means I have to go to hospital every six months. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it normally means realistically three or four hours off work. Yes. And telehealth means I can carry on working until the doctor rings me, take the 10 or 15 minutes for my appointment, and then get back to work. Yep. Which is a huge difference. Yeah. Yep. So it's definitely convenient. Nobody's wanted to join in. So. Oh, have we pasted the link yet? Yeah, I posted it. In, I posted it in the comments. So Did you? Let, let me just I... post it again. I'm going to copy and paste it in here now. There you go. If you're wanting to join and you've got a microphone and a headset and a computer, or I guess you're on your phone, you should be able to just click on that link and it should work. So it'd be nice if somebody did because I've I've sort of. I could go on with my – I mean, I've got a million and one topics I could go on with, but it'd be nice to chat to somebody who's might have been listening for a while. I might, while we're just waiting to see if somebody joins us, is just do a little bit of homework, follow-up. So let me just get rid of that. You might remember, dear listener, that we're speaking about Israel and the civil war and the Palestinian conflict. Mel J, so she tried on the phone. It didn't work. Sorry, Mel. Now, why? Could somebody else please try that link and just see if you get through? I suspect that the phone doesn't have the browser plugins that you need. All right. Okay. You might need to be on a desktop. Israel, I was basically saying surely the Palestinian Arabs were fighting against the Zionists and all seemed to think that that wasn't the case. And I did a little research basically Wikipedia, and what it said was that during the Civil War, so basically the 1947-1948 Civil War was the first phase of the 1947-49 Palestinian War, and so during the Civil War, the Jewish and the Arab communities of Palestine clashed. Hello, we've got somebody. So who have we? Ah, this will be James, I think. Let me just see. James, are you there? I am. Let me just mute your audio. Okay. Sorry, I can't get down to Sydney, James. It would have been nice to catch up with you again. You're still sporting. That's right. You're still sporting a, a fine moustache, I see. Yes, I am. <laughs> That's all right. It's actually my girlfriend's birthday on that Friday, so I wouldn't have been able to come anyway. Right. Well, thoughts on what we've been talking about the last few weeks or months, James? I went on a mad spiral into friendly Geordie's work. Mm-hmm. And it's made me think a lot more about the mainstream media's coverage of Labor and made me re- reconsider my position, re my, my, my general idea about how I align politically. Right. So he's obviously quite 
pro-labour. Yes, he's he's not so much pro-labour. Oh, he is pro-labour, but he's also very anti-coalition. Yeah. So what did he say that changed your mind? Or he he talks a lot about the the Overton window, the idea about manufacturing consent. Yep. The book by Chomsky, which I'm yet to read, but I've yep. been around the podcast for long enough to get the general idea about what it what it is. Yeah, and like just before I commented, asking about the the car park rot. Oh yes, I haven't got fully up to speed with that. It just sounds like a money, a lot of money thrown at at once again people who are well connected and perhaps yeah. not providing what we really need. It's but just it's, an, yeah, yeah. another case of it. But what if you look at the, the Australian Sydney Morning Herald or the Financial Review mm. over the last two days, you would have thought government spending wasting millions of dollars would have at least made it on the page two. No. It, the thing about Friendly George is, is he's quite scathing about the media and not just the Murdoch media, but he's quite scathing about the Fairfax media as well. So, yeah, it's interesting though. Like I've been enjoying Crikey lately. I, fi- I find Crikey comes out with a lot of good stuff, but they're, they're kind of anti-friendly Geordies because the other thing is the sort of there's a group on the left who don't like the friendly Geordies because when it comes to, say, Ballolaro, he puts on the fake Italian accent yeah. and, and ridicules his ethnicity. And he does that with a few different ethnic groups. And a lot of people just can't handle that sort of approach to things. So he's got some enemies on the left because of that rough edge. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely a rough edge. And he does love to attack the physical appearance of people when he's taking down their, when he's attacking their ideas, which often gets other people offside. Mm. But I find if you discard that and just listen to actually his core message, then he actually makes some very good points. Mm. About the media or about Labor or both? Um, like... About the media's coverage of our governments. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It is pretty good in that regard. So. I don't know. The podcast itself rambles on a bit. Not like this podcast where we're. And I quite like his co-host, the Pakistani guy Ali or whatever. Yeah. I quite like him. He's he's tries to keep it sensible. So I, yeah. I haven't yeah. I haven't listened to much of the podcast yet, but I've I've only really had time to look at his YouTube channels. But yeah. it takes a while to get through an extensive back catalog. Yeah, particularly when your favourite podcast is generating a two-hour podcast. That you've got to get through, James. <laughs> yep. Double time. Yeah. Hey, we've got Tom the Warehouse guy here. I'll put Tom on as well. So, Tom, are you there? Hello. Can you hear me? Yes, we can, Tom. Hear you loud and clear. Awesome. Yeah, welcome aboard. Hey, I just wanted to say I really, I really love the podcast. I've just been listening to it for... I'd say... Sorry, it's a bit impromptu here. I'm not too sure what to say, but... I've been listening to it now for a couple of weeks and I really enjoy all of the content. I think everybody needs to listen to the uh, interview that you did with the guy that did the finance, all of uh, Dr. Yeah, Dr. Stephen, Dr. Stephen Hale yes. on modern, yes. modern monetary theory. 
Yeah. Yes, that is very interesting. I think all of your listeners should listen to that. I love the 12th mm-hmm. man. I know he's not on tonight. But I just wanted to say really about the COVID-19 pandemic. From the very beginning, we had pre-warning of all of this. You know, we we had so many opportunities to get this right and to nip it in the bud. And now it's just, it's out of control, in my opinion. You know, this Delta variant, and there will be other variants to come that will escape and we'll get out into the community and we'll have to adapt to a, a COVID life when we didn't need to. We, we've had one and a half years and there's no accountability, in my opinion, really, when it comes down to it. And everyone is just so okay with it all. So, Tom, how can we make people accountable? This government is accountable for nothing in terms of Car park rorts, sports rorts, like the woman responsible for sports rorts has now been promoted back into Cabinet. Nobody cares. Scott Morrison bungles this whole pandemic and yet his approval rating, even amongst Labor Party supporters for his handling of the pandemic, is above 50%. How, yeah. how, how, do, we, how do we make people accountable? How does the public become well, aware? Look, if you think back to the last federal election, what choice did we have? I mean, what would it be like under Shorten? You you know, at the end of the day, we only have a bipartisan two-party system. Mm -hmm. You know, we we don't have much to choose from, you know, and I appreciate all of your efforts for running for office. I didn't even know about that, and you know that I know you personally. So I was astounded to hear about that, and I commend you for all of those efforts. I think all of your views on secularism need to be promoted, and I want to do everything that we can to do that. But I just look at Jeanette Young. I think it's time to stop her from getting the governorship. Because she let the origin go ahead. We had less restrictions yesterday Mm. than when we first had the UK variant in the state a few months ago. You know, we knew about these variants of concern that were coming. And in my opinion, I mean, whilst I'd love to say that the whole lot of them need sacking, it's who Mm. you replace them with, you Mm. know. Okay, here's a question for you. Bill Shorten, clearly thought wouldn't have been a good choice. Just uh, what would be your main complaint about Bill Shorten that, that you didn't like about him or his policies? Like if, if you had the chance to say one thing as the worst thing complained about Bill Shorten, what would it be? The worst complaint? God, you're putting me on the spot here. But, um, no, no, I'm not, Tom, because he was terrible. It would be a disaster. We only had two <laughs> to choose from. The other one was Bill Shorten. It, what What is bit- it? You know, the first thing I look for in a in a leader is just their just their skills as a leader. I think that that is just so important to as a prime minister. And he, you know, Scott Morrison does not have those skills that I would like in a leader. But Bill Shorten was his way down the scale when you look at it. That's pretty you know, vague. That's pretty vague, Tom. It Come is on, vague, if it's, if it's that bad, Trevor, can I interject? Yes, please. Look, Tom, can you name? A single policy position of Scott Morrison? Of Scott Morrison? Well, look at the Religious Discrimination Act, what he's doing with that. Yeah, yeah. so where's that? was that an election promise nearly 18 months ago? No, no. Well, well 
mm-hmm. he, he kind of tied himself into that, you know, with his, his promises to sort of get elected yeah. within the religious communities, if you look at all of that. But, you know, just it's just... Just, just, just your comment about Bill Shorten is a familiar one to me, Tom. Like, you're not the first person to say that. And you're not the first person that I then said to them, name me one bad thing about Bill Shorten, and they actually struggled to find something. And, you know, he's not the most charismatic and, uh, you know, if you're organising a dinner party, he mightn't be the first guy on your list. But he wasn't, yeah. that, but he wasn't that bad. <laughs> he wasn't a daggy dad. That was the problem. Yeah. It just, you know, in terms of policy and what he had to say, it's pretty hard to pin something on him that would be really against the grain, I think. You know, have a think about it, and and because I put you on the spot, and 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 maybe come back to me at some stage with the worst thing no, about I, Bill Shorten. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. you, you know, you have to remain open minded throughout all of this. But you know, at the end of the day, you you know, you have to look at what people voted for. Uh, a lot of corporations and things are tied up with the Liberals, so the. You know, Queensland was always in the swing in that regard. ScoMo did say a lot of right things at the beginning, but he also said a lot of wrong things as well. And I think a lot of people sort of got confused and sort of went along with him. But I I guess we'll never know what it will look like under a shortened government now. But yes, I'll certainly keep an open mind and uh, get back to you on that. Yeah, yeah. And just as a matter of a debating technique, dear listener, when you're up against somebody and you sort of with that sort of thing, it's actually a really good question to ask somebody sometimes is just name the worst, what, what is your, whatever the argument might be over. And sometimes people might, sometimes I get in conversations with people uh, and they want to fire hose me with a whole bunch of statements very quickly and they might have said sort of 10 things that I disagree with. And a really good technique sometimes is just to say, you know, you said a whole bunch of things there, tell me what you think is your best argument and I'll deal with that one. If I can knock that one on the head, then I don't have to worry about the others. So anyway, just as a sort of a debating tactic or whatever, it's a handy one to have. So James, what else you got to say? Hey, throw me on the spot. Um, I'll be voting Labor next at the next federal election. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah. And I'll probably be voting Labor the next New South Wales election. I've really just been spiralling down the friendly Geordies thing and that's mm. where I've, what I've spent my last – since you mentioned on the mm. podcast last week, I spent almost – whole of last week indulging his content right because you're you listen at one and a half speed or something is that right is it two two (laughs) tell me you don't do it to my podcast james please i I do oh when i watch when i watch the live streams (laughs) it slows you down i have to tell myself oh no it's actually happening live you can't speed it up right okay yep Hey, Once you get used to it, it's fine. Yeah. Actually, here's a tip. This is what, dear listener, this is just for the true believers, but uh, I'm going to start using a program called Descript, which basically you can upload the uh, media file to this thing and it will create a transcript of everything you've said. And it's about 95% accurate. But the really good thing is that it will find all of your errs and ums and they'll appear... So the whole transcript appears in a Word document and you can edit the Word document and it will edit the audio file. So if there's a paragraph that you wanted to cut out, you could just um, you know, highlight it in the Word document, hit delete, and it will also delete the corresponding audio file. And 
you can also set it so that it will find all of your errs and ums and delete all those automatically. So I'm going to give that a go in the next few weeks. So for people listening to the recorded version, I will um, not hear the um, not hear the ums and errs. So that'll be nice. Anyway, I digress. The next version will give you an electric shock when you do it. <laughs> I do okay. have a question for you though, Trevor. Yes. What system do you use to track all of these articles and stuff that you want to talk about on the podcast? Yeah, so I use a feed reader called InnoReader. So if you if you find a website, like, for example, the John Menadue blog, Crikey, that I subscribe to, any newspaper services, any of the blogs that I might... Yeah, any blogs that I find that are printing interesting stuff, I used to just sign up and have them send me an email newsletter and my inbox was just getting inundated. So there's a, uh, you can use a feed reader where you basically type in the website address and it collates it all into, into like a, a web page for you and, and into categories. So you can actually, I might be able to let just, let me try this with a bit of luck. So let me just share the screen. So that's the inner reader dashboard. And so blogs that I subscribe to, Yanis Furifakis, John Menadou, Crikey, Jacobin, Michael West, Robert Reich, Ken Malik, Michael Hudson, George Monbiot, a whole bunch there. Things like secular sites like the Rationalist Society, the Atheist Foundation, the Religion and Ethics newspaper, things like that, the Australian Institute. Whenever they post an article on their website, then this this Inno Reader, I-N-O Reader.com, grabs it, puts it into this page for me, and they're all there, and I can um, quickly see them and based on the headline and the first few paragraphs, decide whether I need to keep it or not. So if I like it and I want to read it later, celebrating Julian Assange's 50th birthday, I would put it in a star and then in the stars column, I've got all the ones that I think I might use eventually. So that's how I kind of keep track of of all the different things that I'm subscribing to. That's the sort of system I've ended up working. And there are free versions of feed readers around. This one costs me, I think, four or five dollars a month, but works really well. So, so yeah, I recommend that sort of thing. So when you go to put an, uh, an episode together, you just collect four or five articles and just send them to the guys? Uh, so, to... yeah, so I'm always – I've got a running uh, Word document, which – It's about 200 pages long now. It's – yeah, so so I've got a running Word document, so I just, I just cr- create that document every week and just keep pasting stuff into there and – give the guys 24 hours notice and send it to them and say, this is what we're going to be talking about. And and usually with things like, you know, highlighting there the bits that I've found that are area of interest. So, so yeah, so I've got that document now as every episode I've ever done. So sometimes I might think to myself, oh, what was that story we were doing? Like it might be on, you could name virtually any topic, but have I ever spoken about Somalia? Yeah. And there's six results, and in the whole six years, I could quickly find what episode that was. So, so basically, throw it all into a Word document and oh, yeah. and keep it all there, and that way I can 
find it and yeah so that's that's how i'm keeping that's track first, of things that's very uh, similar to what i did in uni Ooh. yeah yeah yeah. Sorry, I just saw just saw Jill's comment. What was uh what? Yes. Barnaby well, so Jill says what what about Barnaby Joyce being elected as representative for women's article? Please discuss. It's almost as good as Saudi Arabia being the what was it, the United Nations Women's Yes, or on the Human Rights Council, chair of the Human Rights Council and things like that. Look, the, the, the Nationals, yes. Sorry, have you been uh, keeping up to date with Matt Hancock in the UK? Because you can draw parallels between what's been going on there and almost the re-election of Barnaby Joyce's deputy PM. Was he involved in a sex scandal and has come back in, well, in, a, in a second reincarnation? Not well, not Barnaby Joyce as such, but it's you know if you look at his sort of track history with what he's done, yeah, you know it's 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 quite questionable. Yeah, I mean yep. Barnaby, these guys just get away with anything, don't they? They can just have a a year or two in the wilderness and then come back and bring people like Bridget McKenzie back with them. The, the Nationals. How they they're so you know their level of power is so out of proportion to their actual vote. It's one of the major problems in Australian politics. They they don't well, even look after their. Because they have such tight, they have such a razor thin majority on the floor. They require every single member to be present to vote, which is why Andrew Lamming hasn't didn't get the boot when that came to thing because they needed him. Yep. And same with Barnaby. Like if they were like. The, the Nationals could – I'm sure the Nationals could put like a scarecrow in at, in New England and he'd, he'd be elected. They'd mm. be elected. Mm. So he's not worried about he's – not, he's not in danger electorally. He just hangs around and, like you said, just biding his time and, and until the, McCormack stuffed up. They're not even looking after their own constituency. Like if their constituency are farmers who are naturally concerned about water and climate change and the environment and – They've just morphed into this pro-coal lobby party that really doesn't work for farmers, I would have thought. So the Shooters and Fishers did all right in New South Wales and took a bit away from the Nationals, I think maybe as a result of that. You you know that they're called the Coalition. The Coalition, (laughs) yeah. Thank you, Joe. (laughs) Um, It's – look, you've – they're just symptomatic of the entire coalition, really, aren't they? I mean, when you look at that collection of numbskulls that are in charge of our government and you just think, oh, my goodness, how did, we, how did it get to this point? And the Nationals are really just an example of, 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 of poor-calibre candidates that we're lumbered with. The way the system works, this, this sort of two-party system, this pre-selection process that means our choices are so limited and it works both ways even the labor party i mean the labor party i was actually i made some phone calls because i haven't joined a branch of the labor party locally so i started to make some phone calls and i was talking to the local gap branch guy and explaining about shay and how she was told she couldn't be a candidate in the ryan electorate because she'd been on this podcast now he was the secretary of one of the branches here and he had no idea about that whole 
fiasco. Had no idea at all, and and he was also bemoaning the the caliber of candidates. So it, with Labor, we're just getting these advisors to ministers who eventually the work the class. staff a class exactly. And now in the Liberals, we're getting either religious nutters or we're getting, in the case of... Pseudo-academic from think tanks. Yeah. Yes. In the sort of Senate particularly, we're getting the Institute of Public Affairs type get a gig. And then in the Nationals, we're getting these lumbering dinosaur, cow-cocky type guys. Uh, It's... Democracy, but it's it's not working. Not working for me. It's uh, but how, so. How do you do you think a representative democracy doesn't work? Then is that what you're saying? I, I think I, I don't like this this whole district and electorate stuff. Where basically, you know, I'm in the seat of Ryan, a northwest suburb of Brisbane. And we're electing our federal member who's supposedly going to go into parliament to vote and keep our interests as a elected member for our district and look and if it comes to a marriage equality vote, he will consult with us and presumably vote how we feel. I I just think this idea of of these electorates and and Politicians representing a small district and on all those districts going into a parliament probably doesn't make sense anymore, I think. So then would you go something more along the lines of a proportional representation like you have in this, like in the Senate, but across the country? Yeah. Like get rid of the geographic distinctions in the Senate. So Maybe, but, you know, then, of course, you're going to get lumbered with just sort of party apparatchiks who who can w- work their way into the pre-selection tickets the way it's currently framed. It's uh, I don't know so that that's the solution. So your problem is not with or well, you have a problem with the the geographic representation in the lower house, but you also have a problem with the party apparatchik controlling the quality of the candidate that we get. Yeah, and I think it all boils down to. The difficulty for the average Joe to take the time to know what the issues are, to think about it and to look at the candidates and to make an assessment that's about their value and their nous. And I just think it's really hard for people who are so short on time to figure stuff out, either the issues and where they should stand or the people that they're supposedly voting for and whether they're good or bad. I just don't... People just don't have the time, they don't discuss it amongst their friends, they, they think about it the day before they vote. It's human nature, but I just think I was talking to my neighbour about this. Change only will come after really tough times come as a sort of semi-revolution, if you like, like we saw in Spain with the rise of Pedermis and other third parties cropping up. It's been in countries where they've had massive youth unemployment, 30 35%, where people have gone, you know what, this obviously is not working and and other parties have created and people pay more attention. Mm. Well, you could argue that's been the case in Australia for the last three or four years with mm. uh, per capita growth being in decline. 
Well, the only reason we've actually had any economic growth is because we've been keep importing immigrants. Yeah, but it hasn't been bad enough. It hasn't been a disaster. It hasn't been a hasn't been a bad recession. You know, it hasn't been people losing their jobs and middle-aged people with their kids having to move back into home with their grandparents, which is what happened in Italy and Spain. Well, yeah. Adult, adults can't afford to, 20-somethings can't afford mm. to leave, that, leave the family home. That's pretty, that's getting there. Like, do you know how long it takes to save $200,000? Yep. And the system is geared to keep the people who've got property happy and people have been brainwashed into an acceptance of this. I mean, it's slowly changing where people are going, maybe this crazy property prices aren't such a good thing for our community. Even the people who are benefiting from it are starting to say, maybe this isn't such a good thing, but we're so ingrained in in it. I, yeah, I just don't see until there's real pain that there would be some major change i'm quite pessimistic that way i don't know how to change it i don't have a obvious solution for people to find the time yeah you you, i I remember listening to you in one of the podcasts you did an interview uh, with a a young flight attendant i can't was it caitlin was that her name Um, shay that'd be shay shay interviewed shay yeah yes yes that's right that was shay's Um, audition for this job yeah (laughs) i i I forgive myself. Yeah. I remember you saying that the only way really to get into the political system and and sort of achieve any real change is to agitate it. I've heard you use that word quite a few times, like you yeah. should go to their Labour Party meetings or the Liberal meetings and agitate. What do you mean by that and how do you see that as an avenue for change? Well, the classic example is that lady who joined the Labour Party and got voluntary assisted dying onto the policy agenda. And here we are today in Queensland where it's probably going to happen. So she joined, she agitated, she got it onto the policy, she got it at the state conference. It was the bottom of the agenda item. They thought it wouldn't get up because they never get to the bottom of the agenda item, but it did. So it's that sort of thing. And I guess I would say probably to Shay, I've never said to her directly, but I'd probably say, you know what, stay on the podcast, make noise, agitate. In four years' time when you're ready to run, the, the flavour might be that they're ready for people who have actually done something and have got something to say and you, your time might come. If um, Just sort of staying silent and trying to play by the rules, it just isn't satisfying. So so agitating would be actually getting in and, and arguing for policy change and arguing for legal change. And I guess I'm doing that in my own little way with my court action against the education department. I'd call that an agitation. Yes. So, yeah, I think I don't think there's any hope for things like the science party or the secular party or reason party or things like that i think you have to get your hands dirty one of the bigger parties i think yeah i'm inclined to agree with you there hmm. that's that's what i'm starting to sort of realize now and and you sort of have to work your way to the top and a lot of them hang in there for a long time the people that eventually become pm but you know they're people that for a long time you would never even imagine that they would have a shot and then all of a sudden they're thrust into that position. 
Yeah. If you live long enough, like Joe Biden, you just eventually get there through attrition. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I might be wrong, but I sort of think you have to be part of that major, major parties. You know, some guys like Nick Xenophon broke through, but he worked his butt off to be in front of the camera at every single moment. He was such a promoter, a self-promoter. Not everyone can do that. Yeah. So, you know, Mel J, she says, oh, actually, Mel, I'll highlight you because I can. So she says, I totally agree, Trevor, agitate. I made a stink in my local ALP campaign that made a difference to a local environmental issue. Mel certainly did. So I won't go, I won't divulge secrets, Mel, but there was a significant issue and Mel happened to be in the party on the ground and she did agitate and stop something that was quite ridiculous from potentially going any further. So she made a difference. Yeah. So you've got to be in it to, to, you know, even if you're not, even if you're just talking to people, even if you're just making opinions known, John Simmons is there somewhere in the chat room. He's a member of the Labor Party. He's been on the podcast when he visited the other week and even just being in the branch and making yourself known and sharing ideas with people, what else can you do? Share ideas, talk. Depends on your particular skill sets and what you want to do. But yeah, so when agitate, that's what I think. If anyone's got any better ideas, I'm up for it. Mm. Mm. Well, that's basically the only legal way to do it. Mm. Is there an illegal one I can consider? <laughs> yeah, revolution. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You could do, do the Jesus man thing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the creator of everything. Yeah. So, so yeah, John in the chat room says, we're certainly making waves at our Labor branch in New South Wales. So I know some of the lo- local local Labor Party branches have passed resolutions, like I know the local Gap branch did of the Labor Party, a resolution saying that they wanted the leadership to fight and to stop being such a small target federally. So, now. Yeah. At the end of the day, probably the federal guys just ignore it and go, who cares what the pissy little branch at, at the Gap thinks? But what else can you do? Yeah. What's the rank and file? You might not know, but do you know what the rank and file of the Labor Party think about a federal ICAC-like apparatus? I don't know. don't know what the rank and file think. So I, I don't know. Cause that, that would, I'm assuming that would have certainly fixed up the, the likes of Angus Taylor and Bridget McKenzie's. Yeah. All of these scandals that just keep seeming to happen in this cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I suspect they've got quite sensible opinions in the branches. It's people are so, once they get a bit of power, they're, they're they hang on to it and, they, and they're not wanting f- to pick fights. You know, like it, it's like with religious instruction classes in Queensland the Queensland Parents for Secular State Schools met with every education minister in the last 10 years and each one said, yeah, these religious instruction classes, I agree, it's pretty silly that we have them and and we shouldn't, but I don't want the fight and I can't be bothered. I don't care enough to have a fight with the religious groups over this, so I'm just going to let it go. So The religious groups, Bronx State, the um, PAC, yeah, uh, parents and friends. Yes, yeah, so yeah, I, th- I think there's too much towing the line, and not enough agitation and complaining and fighting and arguing and being 
bitter and angry. Time to get angry in those branches, I think. So, look, join a branch and see what happens and tell me all about it. So I'm not going to join a branch. I've decided I'm going to just flit amongst a bunch of different ones and visit them and just see what they're doing. So that's what I think I've decided to do in here in the Gap. So the strange thing is that the branches are really this... I'm in the federal seat of Ryan, and I think there's like six or eight branches in the federal seat. And some of them, maybe they only get six people turning up at a meeting. So I'm not exactly sure how this works, but they seem to have too many branches for each electorate, it seems to me. But I don't know. I haven't been to one yet, but just on the face of it, that's what it seems to be. So, yeah. Hmm. John says, I'm putting up a motion at our next meeting that we withhold voluntary party business till they respond to our no-confidence vote in Sussex Street. There you go. So good on you, John. That's the sort of stuff. So is anybody else out? I know, so Mel and John are members of a party. I am. Shay is. Is there anybody else out there who's actually a member of a political party at the moment? Sing out if you are. So... You mean other than the secular party? Well, are you a member of the secular party still, Joe? I haven't resigned yet. Oh, okay. There you go. So, yeah. I'm not currently a member. Right. Myself. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, well, I, I, I sense you're conservative, Tom. You should go in there and see what happens. Jill is in the chat room. She, Jill says she is. Good on you, Jill. And Matthew, he's the VP of his. Good on you, Matthew. Very good. So there we have got a few. Both Labor, are you, Jill? Yeah. And the, the thing I think with a lot of these parties, though, is that, you know, I think Labor views are quite, they're quite, dis, you know, the, the disparity between those views in the Labor Party, people are more aligned on the right in the Liberal Party in their views, mm. you know, and... A, a lot of the time when Labor win the vote, they do have to, you know, make alliances, usually with the Greens, etc. Yeah, so they have to make an alliance because they don't have their numbers and they're kind of ideologically close to the Greens in many respects. So, But just when it comes to everyday business, you feel that the, the Liberals party members would be of more of one mind than a Labor Party branch meeting would be. Is that what you think, Tom? Yes. Right. Yes. I think that the left views are very, dis- you know, there's so much disparity between them. Right. You can get really far left lefties and then, you know, quite centrist lefties. Right. And I think that that photo that used to be on the Patreon page where you had the circle, you know, the Venn diagram. Yes. With centrist in the middle. You know, I think a lot of us really want to be centrists. Mm. You know, it's just that we, at the end of the day, we've got to pick a side to win. Mm. And by making that decision or that making that vote, you're subscribing to a whole lot of things that you might not necessarily agree with. That's the that, essence of bipartisan, you know, a two-party yeah. system, I guess, yeah. the drawbacks of it, but, yeah. What's the part? Which is, which is why the Liberal Party is so successful, because they managed to oh, they managed to have, run a scare pay, campaign every at every election that 
that pinpoints a particular issue of labor and says, no, you can't possibly have that here, vote for us, where, where they offer little or no alternative. Mm. Yeah. I'd um, agree with that, yeah. Can you say that again, please, James? I was just looking at the chat room, so I got a bit distracted. The, which is uh, the reason that the Liberal Party is so successful electorally is because the scare campaigns that they run against Labor on particular issues, take the franking credits, for example, where they run hard on one issue and offer little or no alternative and everyone gets scared about this particular thing, whether or not they understand the broader implications or if it's going to actually impact them or not. They mm. just know that Labor's policy is bad because that's what they've been told, therefore they should vote Liberal. Yep. They're good at running a negative scare campaign. That's true. I think the Labor Party had some success with the scare campaign about Medicare at one point against the Liberals. But you're right. I mean, when Rudd got in, he was basically saying, I'm just like John Howard except a bit younger and I have a slightly different position on work choices, I think it was. So, But he was very convincing. He was a very good speaker. Uh, and this is what yeah. I come back to, yeah. you know, my choice of Labor leader. I yeah. very much prefer Kevin Rudd over Shorten. Yes. You know, it, it, just based off of that initial, it, it, as your leader, it, it, he's the guy you want, you know. And I think to a lot of people, even though that's not really relevant at the end of the day, it matters. He was a regular on um, Breakfast TV as well, Kevin Rudd. He was, he's also very articulate. Yeah. Yes. Mark Latham had a quote about Kevin Rudd, which was, the only people who like Kevin Rudd are the people who haven't met him. So <laughs> I think but, but he was very engaging and he got, yeah, he was, he was in front of people. Indeed. Yeah. He was a salesman and he had something to say and a type of charisma for sure. And, you know, yeah. the Murdoch press definitely had an agenda against him. You know, if you look at what he's done with friendly Geordies. Oh, look, when he got elected, they didn't. They kind of went soft on Rudd. It was after he was elected that they yes. turned yes. on him. Which hey, it was mineral yeah. tax, wasn't it? But still, they turned. They weren't. They weren't a fan of that. Yeah. So it was. It was kind of. They gave him a bit of a free run, but then after he was elected, they turned on him. So you know, and this is the thing: the Liberals can run a scare campaign because they get the backing of the Murdoch press, which Labor can't really get when it wants to run a scare campaign. And Friendly Geordies uh, is pretty good at, at sort of pointing out that sort of media power play that goes on all the time, one which the 12th man doesn't really agree with because this is all sort of Noam Chomsky and manufacturing consent and Paul just doesn't see it. But I, I it's, it's just plain as day. So yet another area where we disagree. Just going through the chat room. And just I think somebody said there that, you know, Labor really isn't that left-wing, Tom. Like they're, they're very middle, centre-right. You know, you couldn't call the Labor Party particularly left-wing, could you? Do you think of them I mean, as... Oh, okay, so I come from England. Yeah. Um, if you can't tell in my half yeah. accent that I put on, I guess. Where Labor 
you know, under Tony Blair and governments like that, it was more left than I guess you would see the Labour here. I just see it. Hang, hang on, Tony Blair. You're saying was sorry, very left. Uh, sorry, the, the the it switched around. Cor- Corbyn, of course. No? Yes, the Corbyn. Yes, Corbyn. Okay. He, yes. So, so he's now, but, but but back. Tony Blair led the Labour Party during the Iraq War. Yes, and and he when he, I was growing up there. So but, I but, see it from that. Sorry. Okay, but you wouldn't call Tony Blair left wing at all, would you? Well, when you actually look at what happened in England, you know, we we let in so many immigrants into England. You know, we, we gave people, you know, the, half of the COVID in the country right now is down to the un, unaccounted for population in England. That is a, something that people don't talk enough about. And that's largely down to what, what he created, you know, under his government. And, and, but is that... was. Was that necessarily a left wing? Well, well, we were kind of forced into it because you had people having more kids so that they could mm. get the, the, the doll. You you had all of these issues happening, and so you 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 had to. The government ended up in a position where it was just paying out for everyone to sit at home and do nothing. Right, because in terms of sort of macroeconomic policy, he would have been pretty close to the Conservatives in terms of monetary policy. In comparison to um, Maggie. Yeah. So, you know, he was talking about... So Tony Blair was all about the new third way, wasn't he? So he was uh, kind new of... New Labor. Yes. New Labor. Rather than this traditional Labor for the working man, it was new Labor, which is a little bit of that meritocracy argument that I've been banging on about lately, where... Get yourself educated. The working man can get the job as the computer programmer or as the web designer or all that sort of stuff. Just upskill and and that will solve everything. That was sort of Tony Blair and a very right wing approach to Iraq, like joined with John Howard and yes. boots in all in and and to some extent bringing in a whole bunch of immigrants who are going to take working class jobs and drive down wages and opportunities for the working class but provide cheap labour for the upper class. It's it was kind of like a, a right-wing policy. It's the lack of border restrictions that right. they have, that they've always had, yeah. you know, that you've got yeah. 100, 200 boats yeah. coming into the UK yeah. over the English yeah. Channel every day. The lack of right-wingism yeah. but, but was would the, a failure there. But the upper class and the conservative class would have probably been quite happy with that. In the well, UK. What do you, no, I, no, I wasn't happy right. with it. I mean, right. I, I don't. I suppose I don't fall into right. that category. I guess, yeah. but I, I just see it from a sort yeah. of a secular point of view, outside yeah. of politics. You yeah. know, what's the right thing to do? Yeah, yeah. You, you saw it as a cultural change. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yes. Mm. Fair enough. Yep. Yeah, I, I, I would say that immigration came about because in the early nineties, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a rush for the EU to sign up the formula communist parties before they joined up with Russia. Mm. They were very, very scared about Russia regaining power. And so they were keen to get some very, very poor countries into the EU. Part of the EU is freedom of movement and freedom of migration for work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, the upper classes were quite happy to have cheap Polish plumbers and au pairs and whatever, I would have thought. So 
just doesn't strike me as necessarily a left-wing policy as such. But anyway, you know, really, Tom, just getting back to, you know, modern Australian Labor and whether it's left-wing enough, like, to me, nobody is talking about a wealth tax on billionaires. And somebody has to at some point. These guys are dangerous. They are so dangerous. And the capacity to tax people properly through income just doesn't work anymore because of a lot of billionaires just make their wealth through... So many happen to use to hide it. Well, and just through capital appreciation. Like if you're Jeff yes. Bezos yeah. and you don't sell your shares and they just keep accumulating, and in fact you're running a pretty skinny margin because you're just gaining market share as part of your power play for a monopoly. You know, you, as income is defined under the Tax Act, you don't make that much income, but your wealth increases, you know, exponentially. So nobody is talking about a wealth tax on these guys. And I want what to call about it, an inheritance tax capped at, like, $5 million? Floored at $5 million. I don't personally, I could be talked into it, but I just think it's just very hard to avoid. Yes. And, but, but I think, I think you, you could do a wealth tax at that upper level of 500 million plus, and you could just sell it to say to somebody, have you got $500 million? Are you ever going to have $500 million? Well, you don't have anything to worry about. But you see that asshole Clive Palmer over there? That's dangerous, that sort of Electric guy. Asshole. No, he is an asshole. I, I think I can get away with that with defamation rules. <laughs> so, In your opinion. Yeah, nobody is talking about attacking and taking on this, this sort of obscene wealth and if the Labor Party had any left-wingish notions in it, it would have talked about it. It's not. And I think people would be up for it if they talked about it myself. That's something I could sell. I I could sell a political campaign. The the franking credits, has to be said, were very um, left and anti-cronyism. Yeah, but people could see that that applied to everyday Australians. And so when the scare campaign was applied to Did say... It really, though? How but, many everyday Australians had franking but, credits? But people could see it. Like, yeah, like, but yeah, franking credits were aspirational for all those people with self-managed super funds. Yes. Because yeah, yeah. you and I could go out and buy stocks and get frank credits. It'll be about 10 bucks, but we still get them. Yeah. So people could see, actually, Mel says in the chat room, it did last election. What are you talking about, Mel? Run a, run a left-wing campaign. Yeah. The previous comment. Yeah. Okay. Not left-wing enough, Mel. <laughs> not, not genuinely. I just think capital, the fact that we tax capital gains less than we do income makes no sense. What? Why? Because the politicians have more capital. Exactly. It just doesn't make sense that somebody working flipping hamburgers earning X amount, somebody who's holding shares earns X amount, they're both the same increase or income, and yet the guy flipping hamburgers has to pay more tax. It just doesn't make sense. It, people are up for it if that's explained, but I think they're just scared of 
they shouldn't be scared. You could frame it and get people talking about it. And you could say, let's tax everybody over on a wealth tax 2% per year on their wealth over $500 million. And guess what? Dental will be part of Medicare. Boom, there you go. And who's going to start arguing against that? And you great debate to have. But the Labor Party is just, you know, I don't think they're left-wing enough. I don't think they're appealing to... Oh, I think there isn't someone shouting at the government, you know, with all of these things, you know, the... the the actions of Scott Morrison over the since he's been elected are just enough. They're enough to get him out of office. If you if you have a well articulated argument behind you, I absolutely think we need a tax on these people and these corporations in the way that you're speaking, and that would uh, it would agree with what Dr. Hale said on your podcast, where that money is then redistributed. The problem isn't the amount of money in the system. It's the inequality between the the top 1% and the bottom mm. uh, half. That's the problem. And, you know, if we'd have solved these problems, then we would have had no world hunger or things like that, you know. Where is this money going? It's going straight to the top. That's what we know. Mm. Yeah. Anyway, it's just difficult for people to have these conversations and talk about it. It doesn't really happen. I mean, in your walk of life, when you're with friends at a dinner party or whatever, do you end up talking about these topics at all, James or Tom? Like, are you, when you're with your friends, arguing about the Morrison government and its failings or, or the need for a capital gains tax? I I have I know people that are just as interested as me, and I'll reserve my comments until I'm with them, and then we can have a discussion. But to to my general friends, no, because right. they're just not interested. Yeah, I I completely agree with James. Uh, I don't have friends that watch the podcast or such. I mean, I'm quite new. I, th- th- that's the reason that I subscribe, Trevor, is mm. because I'm so I want to have these conversations and I want more people to have these dialogues. I don't feel that these issues are high enough on people's agendas. You know, when you look at those videos that you see on Facebook of uh, people in the United States who don't even know who their vice president is, you know. Uh, not enough people turn on the radio, watch the news, keep up to date, or have any interest in general. And I think we need to change that. And it's just through better education and, yeah, getting a, a good message out. Yeah. It's... Yep. Okay. Mel in the chat room says, little Johnny Howard won the middle. We have to get it back. That's true. The Howard battlers, which are the sort of tradies, your builders, your carpenters, your plumbers, the sort of small business sector who, who Howard pitched the Liberal Party to, the Labor Party has lost those. It's it's quite interesting that the blue collar has become sort of independent tradies who then, as business people, have aligned with the, with the Liberals. And then, on the other hand, the inner-city latte-sipping elites who maybe don't actually earn, who are very well educated but maybe don't earn so much, you know, university lecturers or middle management or something like that, have, which might have previously been considered conservative territory, have become Labor supporters. So there's been this, this sort of switching of allegiances 
over the last 20 or 30 years. Triggered in those Howard years, really, where that sort of crossover started to happen, the educated inner-city latte sippers really didn't see themselves aligned with the conservative Methodist Johnny Howard, but he appealed to the to the tradies and their sense of independence and and minimal government and minimal interference and just let me get on with it without needing the government, that sort of line. So and that's a you know, a process that's been happening all around the world, not just Australia. Like that's that's the same sort of thing happening in the UK and in the United States. It's not unusual to us. Hmm. Right, well, we've been going, guys, for a while, hour 45. Any other bits and pieces you guys want to get off your chest or, or I might consider wrapping it up? Any other topics or things you want me to cover? I think in the next – so next week, what date are we up to now? Today's date is – so next week will be the six-year anniversary. So the podcast started on the 4th of July six years ago, so we'll have a little celebration with the panel for six years. And – then maybe the following week I might do, as a book review, I'm quite interested in the Bernard Colliery, East Timor thing. I read his book, so that one might do that as the book review. So any other topics you guys want covered or anything I've missed? No, not necessarily. No? Okay, sounds good. So, all right, well, much appreciated. Tom the Warehouse Guy and James in Sydney with the moustache. James the moustache guy. <laughs> Jay, the tech guy, thanks for thanks for tuning in, everybody. It's been a fun thing to do as something a little bit different and hope you enjoyed it and talk to you next week with COVID restrictions permitting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, okay, bye. Goodbye. Thanks. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less but in any event you can subscribe there if you don't like the idea of a regular subscription the website has a link to a paypal donation so you could just do a one-off donation every now and again so there you go it'd be good to uh spread the word get a few more listeners 
And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.